Chapter One of the Cruise of the Alert in Search of Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Cruise of the Alert in Search of Treasure by Edward Frederick Knight. Chapter One The History of the Treasure. In the course of a long cruise in the South Atlantic and up the South American rivers in the years 1880 and 1881, with my little yacht, the Falcon, I found myself more by accident than intention in the neighborhood of the small desert island of Trinidad. We were bound from Montevideo to Bahia, and after running before a heavy pampero off the river plate, we fell in with strong headwinds, and had to thrash our way windward for upwards of a thousand miles of choppy seas and boisterous weather while the rain poured down on us almost without cessation as it not infrequently does during the season of the northerly brazilian monsoon we steered a course away from the land to the eastward hoping to meet with more favorable winds when we had obtained an offing of some four or five hundred miles Vessels bound north from the plate during the season of the northerly monsoon invariably pursue this plan, sailing as much as 700 miles close-hauled on the port tack before they go about and make their northering. Thus, it was our course that brought us in the vicinity of Trinidad, which lies in latitude 20 degrees 30 minutes south and longitude 29 degrees 22 minutes west, distance about 700 miles from the coast of brazil and my curiosity being aroused by the description of the islet in the south atlantic directory i decided to land and explore it we came to an anchor off this desolate spot on december eighth eighteen eighty one and we remained there for nine days our adventures of various sorts the perils of landing, the attacks made on us by the multitudes of hideous land crabs and ferocious seabirds, our difficult climb over the volcanic mountains, and finally our anything but regretful departure from one of the most uncanny and dispiriting spots on earth, are fully set out in my book, The Cruise of the Falcon. On turning to that book, I find that I state there that I had had more than enough of Trinidad, and would on no account set foot on its barren shores again, a rash resolution which I was destined to break nearly ten years after my first visit to the island. The descriptions of Trinidad in the South Atlantic Directory are all of an old date and were supplied at different times by captains of vessels in want of water or with crews stricken with scurvy, who effected a landing in order to procure water or the purslane and other greens which abound on some portions of the shore. Halley in 1700, Amaso Delano in 1803, and Commodore Owen in 1822 visited the island, and it is from their accounts that most of the information concerning it has been gathered. All describe the landing as extremely difficult, and often quite impracticable on account of the almost perpetual surf which breaks on the iron-bound coast. Consequently, mariners avoided the coral reefs and sea-worn crags, and though the masters of homeward-bound vessels from around Cape Horn often sighted the island from a safe distance in order to correct the rate of their chronometers, 
it was rare indeed that the foot of a human being trod its shores but now the land crabs and seabirds of trinidad must be becoming almost familiarized with the sight of man for the report of a vast treasure that is supposed to have been buried here some seventy years ago has induced no less than five different bands of adventurers in the course of the last twelve years to fit out vessels for the purpose of seeking their fortunes among the volcanic ash this is an account of the most recent of these ventures and i think it will be the last of them for whereas all the previous explorers in consequence of mutiny the difficulty of landing and other causes failed to make any real attempt at digging into the landslip which now covers the spot where the treasure is supposed to lie and losing heart in the presence of preliminary perils and discomforts abandoned the island after a few days stay we succeeded in landing by degrees our tents tools and stores and established quite a comfortable little settlement while the digging was steadily carried on for three months and many thousands of tons of earth and rock were removed we worked on until we were satisfied that further search was useless we failed to find the treasure but we did what our predecessors did not we had a very good try for it and we have i think at any rate proved that it is not worth the while of any other adventurers to go in search of this too carefully concealed hoard when i visited trinidad in eighteen eighty one i was not aware that a treasure was supposed to be buried there else i should most probably have prosecuted some preliminary search with a small crew we were five all told and the inadequate tools i had on board so as to ascertain whether it would be worth while to organize a properly equipped expedition on my return home it was not until the year eighteen eighty five that my attention was directed to paragraphs in the newspapers which spoke of the departure from the tyne of the bark oria with a considerable company including navvies and well provided with the tools that were considered necessary for the recovery of the treasure these adventurers started full of hope but were doomed to disappointment as is shown in the following extract which i cut from a daily paper some months later Quote, further information has been received regarding the unfortunate expedition of the oria the vessel chartered by a number of tyne-siders for a voyage to the small island of trinidad off the coast of brazil where it was reported a large amount of treasure was concealed the last letter is from one of the young seamen a young man named russell to his parents in north shields russell states that it is with the greatest pleasure that he has an opportunity of writing and continues to say that the oria left the island on april twenty ninth and he was sure the crew were not sorry at leaving he states that eight seamen were ashore fourteen days and at the end of that time they were so exhausted with the want of water and provisions and with the scorching heat that they had all to be carried on board as a consequence eight of them were laid down with fever and out of the eight two seamen died the expedition was thus unfortunate in more than one respect the oria according to the writer of the letter was at trinidad in the west indies and was expected to leave for england russell says nothing about treasure the burden of his letter is that the crew left the island with the greatest satisfaction
This ill-fated expedition of the Oria was, so far as my information goes, the last before that of the alert. In the autumn of 1888, I happened to meet some South Shields people who knew the history of the treasure and of the previous expeditions. They told me that there had been some talk lately of fitting out another vessel to renew the quest, and that many undeniably shrewd Tynesiders had a complete faith in the existence of the treasure, and were willing, despite former failures, to risk their money and lives in order to discover it. My informant gave me an outline of the evidence on which this faith was based, and I heard enough to so interest me that I forthwith took the train to South Shields and put myself into communication with the heads of the Oria expedition, with a view, in case I should consider the prospects of securing the treasure to be not too remote, of fitting out a small yacht and sailing away once more to Trinidad. The following is the substance of the story as I heard it from Mr. A., who was the prime mover of the last venture, and who himself sailed in the Oria and passed fourteen days on the island. Quote, there is now living, not far from Newcastle, a retired sea captain, Captain P., who was in command of an East Indiaman engaged in the opium trade in the years 1848 to 1850. At that time, the China seas were infested by pirates, so that his vessel carried a few guns and a larger crew than is usual in these days. He had four quartermasters, one of whom was a foreigner. Captain P. is not sure of his nationality, but thinks he was a Russian Finn. On board the vessel, the man went under the name of the Pirate, on account of a deep scar across his cheek, which gave him a somewhat sinister appearance. He was a reserved man, better educated than the ordinary sailor, and possessing a good knowledge of navigation. Captain P. took a liking to him, and showed him kindness on various occasions. This man was attacked by dysentery on the voyage from China to Bombay, and by the time the vessel reached Bombay, he was so ill, in spite of the captain's nursing, that he had to be taken to the hospital. He gradually sank, and when he found that he was dying, he told Captain P., who frequently visited him at the hospital, that he felt very grateful for the kind treatment he had received at his captain's hands, and that he would prove his gratitude by revealing a secret to him that might make him one of the richest men in England. Captain P. says that he appeared very uneasy about this secret, and insisted on the door of the ward being closed so that there might be no listeners. He then asked Captain P. to go to his chest and take out from it a parcel. The parcel contained a piece of old tarpaulin with a plan of the island of Trinidad on it. The man gave him this plan and told him that at the place indicated on it, that is, under the mountain known as the Sugarloaf, there was an immense treasure buried consisting principally of gold and silver plate and ornaments, the plunder of Peruvian churches which certain pirates had concealed there in the year 1821. Much of this plate, he said, came from the Cathedral of Lima, having been carried away from there during the War of Independence when the Spaniards were escaping the country, and that among other riches were several massive golden candlesticks. He further stated that he was the only survivor of the pirates, 
as all of the others had been captured by the Spaniards and executed in Cuba some years before, and consequently it was probable that no one but himself knew of this secret. He then gave Captain P. instructions as to the exact position of the treasure in the bay under the sugar loaf, and enjoined him to go there and search for it, as it was almost certain that it had not been removed. The quartermaster died shortly afterwards. Now this story, so far, bears a strong family resemblance to many other stories of pirate treasure, mythical or otherwise, and though there can be no doubt that great stores of valuable plunder are still lying hidden away in this fashion on many a West Indian quay and desert ocean island, the dying quartermaster's deposition was hardly enough by itself to warrant the expense of fitting out an expedition for Trinidad. But on making researches, it was found that his story was corroborated in many remarkable ways. In the first place, the archives of Cuba were inspected, and a record was discovered which showed that a gang of pirates who had plundered Spanish vessels sailing from Lima had been hanged at Havana at the time mentioned. The probability of the story is further strengthened by the actual history of Peru during the War of Independence. It appears that the Spanish population of Lima entertained a wholesome dread of the liberators of their country, and deposited large sums of money and a vast amount of plate in the forts for security. Lima was then a city extremely rich in gold and silver plate, and the value of the property lying in the fortress alone was estimated by Lord Dundonald as at least six million sterling. Lord Dundonald, who was at the time in command of the Chilean fleet which had been sent to the assistance of the liberators of Peru, endeavored to obtain possession of this fortress by negotiations, and offered the Spanish governor to permit his free departure with two-thirds of his treasure, on condition of the remainder, together with the fortress, being given up to the Chilean squadron. The admiral hoped, by means of this one-third, to abate the mutinous spirit of his men, who had received no pay for a long period, and who were, moreover, in a state of actual destitution. But to Lord Dundonald's disgust, the Peruvian protector, San Martin, for purposes of his own, allowed the garrison to evacuate the fortress, carrying away with them the whole of these riches. Later on, however, Lord Dundonald took the responsibility on himself of seizing the protector's yacht at Ancon, and discovered that it was entirely ballasted with silver coin and uncoined gold. With this, he paid his sailors some of their arrears of pay and prize money. During the first few years of their liberty, the unhappy Lemenos must have occasionally regretted the old Spanish misrule, bad as it was, for their liberators plundered them in the most shameless fashion, and most of the wealthy citizens of Lima were reduced to a state of abject poverty. The tyrannical protector inflicted great hardships on the Spanish inhabitants, and among others of his decrees was one passed confiscating to the public treasury one half of all their property. When some of these unhappy people, driven to desperation, took to sea and endeavored to escape with the remaining half of their possessions, the Republican officers boarded their vessels, and wholly regardless of the decree, appropriated this half also. The wealth of Lima, the richest city of Spanish America, 
was soon scattered far and wide and it disappeared forever but it is probable that only a small proportion of it fell into the hands of the liberators for the executive was not sufficiently well organized to carry out fully the degrees of confiscation i do not think that the property to the value of six million sterling which was carried away by the spanish garrison has been all traced but the records of the day show that the spaniards took every opportunity of escaping to sea in any sort of vessel they could procure carrying with them all the property they could collect in the hope of reaching the mother country or some neutral port it must have been a glorious time for the adventurous persons not overburdened with scruples for it seems that all the gold and precious stones of peru were travelling about recklessly by sea and land without any proper protection the pirates who then swarmed in those seas were not slow to avail themselves of this rare opportunity and carried on a flourishing business until such time as they were caught and hanged by that terrible english admiral numbers of piratical craft hovered around the peruvian ports and the badly equipped vessels of the spanish fugitives fell easy prey to them but lord dundonald on the other hand was ever pursuing the pirates with great energy he captured many of them and later on he was able to boast that he had swept the west coast clean of these scourges of the sea it is known however that several of these vessels escaped his vigilance and that enormous quantities of cathedral plate and specie were never recovered from their hands the pirate vessel that succeeded in reaching the islet of trinidad is supposed to have been one of these captain p on leaving bombay after the death of his quartermaster had intended to land on trinidad and examine the spot indicated on the pirate's plan but as he had a rather unruly crew and was himself crippled with a broken arm he thought it prudent not to make the attempt then and so passed the islet and sailed home on his return to england he told the pirate's story to many people but of course preserved the secret of the exact position of the hiding place nothing however seems to have been done toward recovering the treasure until eighteen eighty when captain p persuaded a shipping firm at newcastle to allow one of their vessels trading in the brazils to visit the island it was arranged that the barkentine john should call at trinidad on her way from santos de bull river and that captain p's son should go along with the vessel so as to identify the spot and act on his father's behalf the john reached the islet but after beating about off it for a week no landing place could be found and the captain decided to give up the attempt but young p was very disinclined to return without having effected a landing and persuaded the captain to allow him to swim ashore from a boat the ship's longboat was therefore put out and was pulled as close to the long roll of furious breakers as was considered safe then young p plunged into the sea and contrived after a narrow escape from drowning to reach the land the surf became more furious while he was on shore so that it was impossible for him to swim off again that day he had consequently to pass the night on the sands without either clothes or provisions and he was moreover in danger of being eaten alive by the land crabs on the following morning the captain succeeded in casting the end of a line on shore 
and the young man was dragged through the surf to the longboat and carried on board the vessel he reported to the captain that he had discovered the spot described by the pirate but that a great landslip of red debris had fallen on the treasure which could not be removed without great labor he said the place tallied exactly with the description furnished by his father and that he firmly believed the story to be true and that the treasure was still there but that he would not spend another such night on the island even if he could get the whole treasure for himself by doing so the captain of the john on hearing the young man's story considered that any further attempt to land would involve great danger which he would not be justified in risking and declining to lend further assistance in the matter set sail at once for his destination the next expedition was organized by my informant mr a of south shields the oria a bark of six hundred tons burthen was chartered she was provided with lifeboats suitable for surf work and an ample supply of picks shovels timber blasting powder and other stores she was partly ballasted with a cargo of steam coal which it was intended to sell in some foreign port so as to pay part of the expenses of the expedition the necessary funds were subscribed by several gentlemen most of whom i believe accompanied the expedition proper agreements were drawn up and were signed by the officers and members of the expedition setting forth the proportion of the treasure each was to receive should the search be successful this party also found the island to be almost inaccessible on account of the surrounding circle of savage breakers and experienced great difficulty in landing the following extract from the letter of one of the expedition describes only the commencement of their perils and adventures Quote, we sighted the island on march twenty third eighteen eighty five but as it was very squally weather we could do nothing until the next morning when we got out the lifeboat fitted her with mast and sail and loaded her with provisions and baggage the ship towed us as near to the shore as was deemed prudent and then left us to make the best of our way there while she stood on her course their weather was very wet and squally and with our deeply laden boat we found we made no progress either with the sails or oars and after toiling until after sunset we found ourselves in a most deplorable position we were all wet to the skin and exhausted with pulling and the seas were continually on the point of swamping our boat darkness then set in our vessel was out of sight and we scarcely knew what to do however i took a lantern from among the stores and got one of the men to light it and hoist it at our boat's masthead as a signal to our vessel it blew out almost as soon as it was up but we succeeded at last in sighting the vessel's port light and got safely on board the next day we determined to take the ship's boat and a small dinghy with us and tow the lifeboat ashore we started early in the morning the ship towing the three boats as close as possible to the sugar loaf and as the weather was now fine we soon got into southwest bay but found that the surf was much worse than we anticipated we anchored the lifeboat with her cargo of stores close to the edge of the surf and then mr d the mate myself and two hands pulled along the weather side of the island seeking a landing place but found heavy surf at all points and the bottom sown with sunken rocks 
we then pulled back to southwest bay to consult with the others to the best course to pursue at last the mate volunteered to scull the dinghy ashore through the surf if one man would go with him one of the crew agreed to go so they partly undressed and took their places in the dinghy a line was made fast to the stern and as they pulled towards the shore we paid out intending to haul the dinghy back again when they had reached the shore all went well for a time but when near the beach a tremendous roller caught the stern of the dinghy drove the bow under and turned her right over the two men managed to get clear of the boat and with some difficulty swam ashore End quote. eventually mr a and seven other men succeeded in landing carrying with them a limited quantity of provisions and some of the tools they remained on the island from march twenty fifth to april seventeenth during which time the vessel had been blown out of sight insufficient food and exposure to rain dispirited the men and their imaginations were dismayed by the dismal aspect of these barren volcanic crags and by the loathsome appearance of the land crabs which swarmed everywhere and continually attacked them they found what they considered to be the spot described by the pirate but do not appear to have been quite so certain on this point as was young p very little digging was actually done for says mr a we had few hands on shore capable of standing the heavy work under such a burning sun they had only dug a small trench four feet deep into the landslip when the oria was sighted then the sick and disheartened band refused to stay any longer on this accursed island and insisted on being taken on board so leaving all their tools behind them for in their anxiety to get away safely they would not be burdened with these they were carried off to the vessel so emaciated weak and ill that the captain came to the conclusion that he would lose most of his men if he landed them on so uninhabitable a spot and abandoning the search he set sail for the west indies this expedition therefore practically accomplished nothing the problems as to whether the treasure was or was not lying under the landslips in southwest bay was as far from solution as ever before the departure of the oria expedition from south shields a good deal had been written concerning it in the english papers with the result that some other adventurous spirits having had their attention drawn to this possible el dorado hurried away to trinidad in order to anticipate the tynesiders the following letter appeared in an english paper on may fourteenth eighteen eighty five the oria people of course knew nothing of this rival expedition until they returned to england trinidad in the south atlantic the hidden treasure expedition from a correspondent keel may eleventh eighteen eighty five quote, under this heading i have just now noticed a paragraph sent to the editor of a danish daily paper which in its bearing on the well-known search for treasure expedition may prove of interest to your readers being in the shape of a letter sent from new york new york april seventeenth eighteen eighty five on my arrival in new york from aracaju i read in your paper of january fourteenth eighteen eighty five about an expedition to be started from newcastle to proceed to the island of trinidad in the south atlantic with the object in view of finding a treasure buried there some time ago by pirates and i am in a position to furnish some particulars which 
in all probability are connected with this affair on january thirteenth eighteen eighty five i was chartered with my vessel in rio de janeiro to take over to the above-mentioned island an american captain and four portuguese sailors together with a number of pickaxes spades etc and a whaleboat i was told that these people intended to go to this island to investigate if any guano was to be found a voyage of eleven days brought us there but we had to keep off the shore on account of the breakers for over three days the men were then put ashore and remained on the island for four days during which time they were occupied with boring and digging whereupon we sailed back to bahia and landed them there i believe that these men either by telegram from england or by other means had heard of the existence of a treasure on this island and that they meant to anticipate the english expedition however they found nothing i noticed very well that the american captain as well as his men were highly disappointed let me take this opportunity to dissuade all masters of vessels to search in this uninhabited island for fresh water it is a matter of great difficulty and danger to put boats on shore through the coral reefs the indications on the charts for casting the lead should be a good deal further from the shore during the time we were there the wind was north-northeast and the current southwest upon a speed of from twelve to fifteen quarter miles in twenty-four hours in southwest bay two cable lengths from the shore there is a reef not mentioned on the charts h n ankerson master of the sailing vessel from fano unquote. i found that the correspondent who sent this letter was correct in his information when i called at bahia with the alert my ship chandler mr wilson told me the whole of this story as it was related to him by the american adventurer on his arrival at bahia from trinidad it is somewhat strange that the excavations made by this party were not seen by the Oria people who landed on the island within two months of the departure of the americans but this islet has been so shaken to its foundations by earthquake shock and volcanic action that it is brittle from its mountain tops to the beach and is in a state of perpetual change gigantic landslips are frequent and i should not be surprised to find that all traces of our three months hard digging have by now been entirely obliterated there might have been some fun by the way had the oria and the american arrived off the island at the same time since my return i have heard of two other expeditions which started from the other side of the atlantic in search of the hidden treasure of trinidad but as with the former expeditions nothing was accomplished the loss of men and boats in the surf sickness and the numerous difficulties and dangers encountered disheartened the men and the attempt was abandoned before any serious work was done it would seem as if this was one of those forlorn islands of which one reads in the old romances of the sea on which the bloody deeds of the pirates have left a curse behind so that the treasure is protected by evil spirits and the great roaring seas which roll up seemingly without any natural cause even after days of windless weather and the ever-tottering crags and all the forces and terrors of nature are made to keep man off from the inviolate horde while the loathsome land crabs might well be the restless spirits of the pirates themselves for they are indeed more ugly and evil 
and generally more diabolical looking than the bloodiest pirate who ever lived. End of chapter 1